Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in the second portion of Mark chapter 4, starting with verse 21, the last section of Mark, the last audio concerned the parable of the sower and the seed. Now, before we get into the rest of the parables from the boat, I'll call it. He, Jesus is sitting on a boat on the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum, speaking to big crowds on the shore. He had to get in the boat because he was being oppressed by the magnitude of his followers. Jesus now is talking about wisdom, spiritual wisdom in general, and I think he's going to encourage his disciples who he just chose the day before, the 12 apostles. So we start here in verse 21 in Mark chapter 4 and go to verse 23. He also said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is concealed except to be revealed and nothing hidden except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, he should listen. Now remember in verses 10, 11, and 12 in Mark chapter 4, Jesus told the Disciples who had asked the meaning of the parable of the sword of the seed, he said, to some it's been revealed, to some it's been concealed. And he basically gave the teaching that if you want to understand something, you've got to have a good heart to understand it. So he's still returning to that theme, talking about knowledge. And now he's saying, well, now, since you guys understand what are said by the parables now, you need to get out the good word. And that's the idea of the lamp being hidden. You don't want to hide this truth I'm giving you. I've commissioned, I've chosen apostles for you. I've chosen 12 of you as my apostles. And now I want you to spread the word. And that's the theme of this next few verses. Now, this idea of a lamp being under a basket, under a, a lampstand is not appropriate that that idea is not appropriate, is something that was taught at various times by Jesus. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is not the Sermon on the Mount, so you see it was taught at a different time. In fact, John Gill says that this particular teaching was probably repeated several times in different places. So we need to remember that whenever we see the familiar idea. Here's what the NIV Study Bible says about the main idea here. Jesus' disciples were to spread the good news far and wide. Even though he was hiding some truths with parables, remember he said, you know, some of the truth I have I've taught in parables so that the bad guys won't understand, so they won't come after me and prematurely kill me. But at some point, we're just going to tell the truth openly far and wide. We're not going to hide the truth with parables anymore. Going on to verse 24, Mark chapter 4, and going through verse 25. Then he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you use, it will be measured and added to you. For to the one who has, it will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Now, I should point out, I forgot to mention that this there is a parallel to this in Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 16, which basically says the same thing as Mark. But there's another place in Matthew that has the same idea, although it's not a parallel passage. In Matthew 7, verse 2, Jesus says this, For with the judgment you use, you will be judged, and with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. Now, this is a measure of judgment, not a measure of what you learned from Jesus. In Mark chapter 4, it's a measure of what you've learned. By the measure you use, it will be measured and added to you. In other words, if you've got a big measure when you're listening to Jesus and, and learn a whole bunch well, then that's how much more is going to be added to you. In other words, learning from Jesus is leveraged. The more you learn, the more you learn. Verse 25, for the one who has, it will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And, of course, that's referring to 
the bad guys, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who don't have spiritual knowledge, and even the little bit of spiritual knowledge they have is going to be taken away, and they're going to be further and further and further in darkness. Now, the parallel passage in Luke chapter 8, verse 17 adds something, for nothing is concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known and come to light. So, that which is concealed is all the, were, were all the truths about the kingdom of God, which God is now revealing to the disciples, and it's going to be revealed when they spread the light. Similar idea in Matthew 10, verses 26 through 27, not a parallel. Therefore, don't be afraid of them, since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, and nothing hidden that, will, that won't be made known. What I tell you, in the dark, the disciples are kind of hiding from the Pharisees, and so they're kind of in the dark. What I tell you, in the dark, speak in the light. Speak it openly when, when your time has come, which is what they did. Of course, they got persecuted for it. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. So Jesus is talking about his teaching to the disciples. It was done in a whisper, quietly, privately, in the house, in Peter's house. And on the, alone on the mountaintop, and when he privately instructed the disciples, but he said, one time, sometime, guys, you're going to go public with this. Jesus says nothing is concealed. What's concealed? Well, it could be the hidden meaning of the parables that Jesus mentioned earlier in verse 10 in Mark chapter 4. Or it could be the things taught by Jesus in private to the disciples. That's what Clark says it is. It's the same idea. Whatever you've learned, give it out. Preach it out. Luke 8, verse 18 says this, Therefore take care how you listen, for whoever has, more will be given to him, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. Here's another little detail that's not in Mark. Luke says even what this person that doesn't have, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even what he thinks he has. In other words, he thinks he's got spiritual knowledge. He thinks he has spiritual truth, but he doesn't have anything. And the crapola that he does have is going to be taken away from him. Of course, that happened in AD 70 when the whole system went down, when the Romans destroyed everything. And by the way, this verse sometimes is erroneously used to try to prove that someone could lose his salvation, and, we, and people interpret it this way. Oh, this person thinks he has salvation, but he doesn't grow enough, he doesn't learn enough, and so what he thinks he has, his salvation, will be taken away from him. No, if you think you have it, that doesn't mean you have it. It just means you erroneously think you have it. This Obviously, this verse cannot be appropriated to teach that one can lose his or her salvation. Now, to show you this is not some half-baked Armenian that thinks this way, Adam Clark, the commentator I have used over and over and over again, he says that it does mean that which you have, you're going to lose. In other words, not what he thinks that you have is going, going to be taken away, but what he actually has will be taken away from him. Well, what does the Greek say? The Greek says, ho doke echein, that which he appears to have, that which he seems to have. Straightforward. So Clark goes through some linguistic gymnastics in order to show that that which he seems to have is that which he does have. Seems like he's going a long way to prove something that's not true. All right, moving on in Mark chapter 4, we go to another parable, a parable that is only in the book of Mark and not in any of the synoptic parallels or in John. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the ripe grain on the head. But as soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, Robertson calls this parable the parable of the seed growing of itself. That's a name I like. 
It's different than the parable of the sower of the seed, which Mark has already mentioned in the first part of this chapter, because that parable, the parable of the sower, emphasizes the nature of the recipients, the soil. Is it hard ground? Is it shallow ground? Is it thorny ground? Or is it good ground? But here we're talking about the power of the seed itself, the word, not the recipients of the word, but the word. Because the seed, although it's very small, has a lot of power within it, and it stands for the word of God. The man sowing the seed, the man scattering the seed, broadcasting the seed, is either stands for Jesus himself, more probably it means Jesus and his ministers of the gospel, people who spread the word, because the emphasis is not on the sower, but it's on the, the, the power of the word itself, the seed itself. Now, this seed, of course, produces a crop by itself. The power of the word does not depend on the quality of the person sowing the seed. And that's something that we need to remember if you feel like you're not a good witness. I, I know for a fact I, I am a Calvinist in my, in when I think about evangelism because I think that yeah, I'm not a professional evangelist. I'm not the Ray Comfort type of guy. I just do the best I can. And I think, well, I didn't do such a good job, but the people turn on believing Christians. And then sometimes I do a real good job, by my lights, a good job, and the people, you know, they're out shacked up with their boyfriend and turned it back on God, or they just don't listen, they don't care. So a lot of, the, of preaching the gospel determines not on how good a job the sower does, but on the quality of the ground that receives, are they in the elect or not, and also uh, the power of the gospel to overcome the conditions on the ground, if you will and to overcome the weaknesses of the person sowing the seed. Now, that's not to mean that you shouldn't get better and better at your evangelistic technique, and you shouldn't use every trick in the book. I shouldn't say trick in the book. You don't want to say that. But you should use every method possible to improve yourself in your witnessing technique. But the ultimate results, the ultimate harvest comes from the power of that seed itself, the Word of God. So just get the Word of God into people. Some people are going to reject, some people are going to laugh at you, but some people that are going to grasp it like a drowning man grasping a rope, and they're going to get born again, and they're going to spread the gospel all over the world, and they're going to create a harvest. Now, notice we have an idea of growing here. The blade comes first, then the head, then the ripe grain. The idea is something is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, could it be the kingdom getting bigger and bigger in the Christian's individual life? Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown suggest then. Or could it be the kingdom of God getting bigger and bigger in numerical terms, more and more people believing? Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says it also means that. So we're not going to quibble over how the kingdom is getting bigger. We're going to rejoice that it gets bigger in your individual life or whether it's getting bigger in the world. Moving along now to Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 32, we take up the second, uh, excuse me, the third parable that Mark mentions, the parable of the mustard seed, starting with verse 30. And he said, this is Jesus speaking, how can we illustrate the kingdom of God or what parable can we use to describe it? Now, remember these, I've been calling them parables from the boat. Their more elegant title will be parables of the kingdom, the kingdom of God that he's trying to establish, that he is in the, in the process of establishing. How can we illustrate the kingdom of God or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown in the soil is smaller than all the seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the vegetables and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. Now, Robertson only gives one parallel passage to this in Matthew 13, verses 31 through 32. But in another time, in Luke chapter 13, at another time, Jesus taught the same parable again. He Sometimes he repeats these parables, and the gospel writers pick up different occasions when he, when he teaches it. But the parable's the same in all three 
accounts, Luke 13, Matthew 13, and Mark 4, all the same as far as I can tell, essentially. So let's start with the point of the parable. What is the main point? Remember when you interpret a parable, we look for the main point first. The main point is this. The kingdom of heaven has a very small beginning like a mustard seed, and it has a very large end like a large tree which all the nations of the all the birds of the sky, referring to all the nations of the world, can rest in. That's it. So what Jesus predicted here was exactly true. He started his kingdom with 12 fishermen and, and working class guys, if I can put it that way. And he ended up with a kingdom that's all over the world. And right now in the 21st century, early 21st century, we're up to about, what, 40% of the earth? I don't know, maybe that number's wrong, over a billion people. So... What Jesus predicted, it actually happened. These disciples he started the kingdom with, were des they were despised. Actually, he himself was despised, and he himself was rejected. And his disciples were quite unimpressive. And before that, there was the wild man in the desert, John the Baptist, and look where we are now. I say this to encourage us when we look at, as we live, especially for Americans living in the United States of Sodom and Gomorrah, where the church has lost its savor, the candlestick is about to be removed. We're about to be judged because of our fear of preaching the gospel. Won't even say anything against so-called homosexual marriage because the government might take our tax-exempt statuses away. Won't say anything about the American Holocaust as we murder over a million babies a year. Oh, no, but we'll say things about other things where you won't get in danger of losing your tax-exempt status. But not those two things. Oh, no. Well, this is discouraging, but remember, the Word of God is so powerful that it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is referring to external extent, the, the numbers of people coming into the kingdom. Of course, the man who's sowing the seed in his field, that's Jesus. And then when he says the mustard seed is the smallest, he doesn't mean that there weren't seeds smaller than this. They actually were. But uh, as John Gill and NIV Study Bible and Jameson Fawcett Brown point out, but it was the smallest seed in Judea, as Gill points out. Jameson Fawcett Brown said the seed was not absolutely the smallest, but it was proverbially the smallest. P people would talk, and they would say that your muscles are as small as a mustard seed, and the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, although that was not scientifically true for all the seeds in the world. Now, of course, I remember listening to talks on inspiration and inerrancy of the Scripture, talking about how people from Fuller Seminary would say, see there, the Bible's got errors in it. Well, all I can say is can any good thing come out of Fuller Seminary? saying stuff like that. You know, you can take language and you can squeeze it. Language is not meant to be mathematical. It's meant to be used in its context as people use it to communicate with. You can take anybody's language, any metaphor, any proverb, and make it and try to take it in a scientific sense and make the language false. For example, if I say my love is like a red, red rose, or excuse me, let's say my love is a red, red rose. See there? You lied. Your love's not like a, your love's not a red, red rose. So... People who love to pick holes in the Bible, normally what they're doing is showing their own lack of piety. Now, the branches is a common, branches of a tree is a common metaphor in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you three, starting with Daniel 4, verses 20 through 22. In the vision, Daniel is describing the vision to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he is comparing Nebuchadnezzar to a tree. And he says this, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, whose top reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals lived, and, its, and in its branches the birds of the air lived. There's the, the key phrase there, in its branches the birds of the air lived. 
The, that tree is you, the king, for you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. So Nebuchadnezzar was king of the Babylonian Empire, and a lot of nations were in that empire, and that was symbolized by the branches of a large tree in which birds lived. My NIV study Bible says the parable of the mustard seed actually alludes to this. Jesus was actually referring to Daniel 4. It wouldn't surprise me. He knew the Old Testament pretty good. Here's some other scriptures that have the same idea. Ezekiel 17, verses 22 through 23. This is what the Lord God says. I will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar, a small sprig, and plant it. I will pluck a tender sprig, sprig from its topmost shoots, and I will plant it on a high-towering mountain. I will plant it on Israel's high mountain so that it may bear branches, produce fruit, and become a majestic cedar. So there's the idea of starting small and ending up big. And then he says of this tree, this majestic cedar tree, birds of every kind will nest under it, taking shelter in the shade of its branches. Same idea. Ezekiel 31, 6. All the birds of the sky nested in its branches, and all the animals of the field gave birth beneath its boughs. All the great nations lived in its shade. So that's why... I think that when we look at the parable of the mustard seed, we're talking about the external growth of the kingdom of God, not really the kingdom of God growing in our heart, which you can always say that, you know. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here, I don't believe. He's talking about the kingdom's going to spread all over the world. And again, he's saying, that giving these parables to encourage these disciples, remember, they are just ignorant fishermen opposed by all the religious and political authorities of the age and who are going to be persecuted from synagogue to synagogue, most of whom are going to be, assa not assassinated, but crucified, executed, they've got a tough road to hoe, and Jesus has given them some teaching that they're going to remember, hey, you're going to win, your kingdom is going to prevail, and these nasty Romans and Pharisees that are going to be out throwing you in jail and persecuting you and taking all your property away and executing you, they're going to lose. I'll say the same thing to the progressive anti-Christian, anti-Christ left that's taken over the American culture. They're going to lose. They're going to be judged, and they're going to lose big time. Moving on now to verses 33 and 34 of Mark chapter 4. Jesus says this. Mark says this. He, Jesus, would speak the word to them with many parables like these as they were able to understand. Notice, as they were able to understand, he wasn't trying to overload them. He would try to get them to understand, and then he would teach them some more and some more. To whom a little has been given, more shall be given, as they were able to understand. And he did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he would explain everything to his own disciples. First of all, we need to make the point that when Jesus said he spoke to them in parables, it was only referring to this incident while he's in the boat at Capernaum, because as John Gill points out, many times before, and it's Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown also point out, many times before and afterwards, Jesus would teach the crowd straightforwardly without parables. So the question that naturally arises is, is, why now? This is my speculation. You have Pharisees there who've already accused him of casting out a demon by Beelzebul. The heat was on, probably pretty high, and so he starts teaching in parables so the, the Pharisees don't really know what he's talking about. And they have a hard time going back down to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem and saying, well, he gave this nice little story about about mustard seeds and about seeds and sores. And the Sanhedrin is going to say, well, uh, how are we going to get him for that? I suspect that's why he did it in this particular place. And then, of course, when he would go to his disciples, if they didn't understand, he wanted to make sure they understand. So privately, he explained the parables to his disciples. Now, in the parallel passage, which is in Matthew 13, 34 through 35, 
Matthew says this, So that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, I will open my mouth in parables. I will, de I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now you might ask, what prophet prophesied that Jesus would speak in parables? Well, the answer is sort of strange. The prophet Asaph. You say, well, I've never heard of the prophet Asaph. <laughs> well, the NIV study Bible says that Matthew here, when he says that that which was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, I will open my mouth in parables. That is referring to Psalm chapter 78, verse 2, which says this, I will declare wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past. Now, if this is true that Matthew is quoting from Psalm 78, 2 here, how can we say he's quoting from a prophet? Because Matthew says the prophet says this. Well, Asaph is called a prophet in First Chronicles. Asaph wrote that psalm. And Asaph is called a prophet in First Chronicles 25, 1 and 2. Verse 2 of First Chronicles 25 is this, says this. First Chronicles 25, verse 2 says this. From Asaph's sons, blah, 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 sons of Asaph, under Asaph's authority, who prophesied under the authority of the king. So Asaph then becomes sort of a forerunner of Jesus who prophesies about the coming kingdom. All right, now let's take up the last incident in Mark chapter 4 that we're going to talk about. This is when Jesus stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee, saved the disciples' life. Verse 35 in chapter 4, on that day when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. Now remember on that day he had just spoken a bunch of parables from the boat. He had probably gotten out of the boat and gone back to the house and privately explained those parables to the disciples. And then he'd come back out and said, well, things are too chaotic here. Let's go over to the other side of the sea. We see in the parallel passages, which, by the way, are Matthew 8 and Luke 8, Matthew 8, verses 23 to 25, starting with verse 23, Matthew says this, As he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Well, just, just, well, I'll just quote verse 23. As he got into the boat, his fo disciples followed him. But the Homer Christian Study Bible says in verse 36, So they left the crowd and took him along since he was already in the boat. The already is a, a translator's interpolation there because it's in brackets. To reconcile that, I would say that what happened was is he took out, once, once he got into the boat, he was already in the boat and then they left. I don't think it means that he was already in the boat after having taught the parables because he, he has to have some time to go into the house to teach the disciples privately. So he probably came out, looked at the chaos, and said, let's go to the other side. And, there, and other boats were with him. It says in Mark chapter 4, verse 36, other boats were with him. Those boats could have been there for, because they were fishing boats that the disciples had. Or it could be that people were deliberately following him for teaching and healing, and they didn't belonged to the disciples. It could have been belonged to the other fishermen, but at any rate, they could have followed. But the disciples were in one boat, and they were going across the sea with Jesus. And then verse 37 and 38 in Mark chapter 4, it says this, A fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already, already being swamped. But he was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Now you might ask, well, how can a fierce windstorm come up on a little lake? Well, it's a sea. It's a sea. I, I remember the first time I saw the Sea of Galilee, and remember it shrunk now because the city of, the, the country of Israel is using the Sea of Galilee for much of its water supply, and tour guide told us that the sea had really shrunk from what it used to be. Well, even in its shrunken state, it's so big you can't see the other side when you start on one side. It's huge. Much bigger than I thought it was. You look at the maps, it just doesn't seem quite as big, but it's huge. And... 
violent cold wind would come rushing down through the Lebanon passes up there and off of Asia Minor, and cool air from the Mediterranean was drawn through those mountain passes, and then you got hot, humid air lying over the lake, that cold air rushing from the Mediterranean, hitting the hot air over the lake, and bam, you got a storm. Some people speculate that Satan caused the storm in order to destroy Jesus. I don't know if Satan's got that much power, so that's just a speculation. Now, in Mark verses 38, which I just read, we have the little detail that Jesus was sleeping on the cushion. He wasn't worried about that storm. Great application point there for all of you who would like to teach a sermon on this, to teach a, give a homiletical teaching on this, sleeping in the middle of the storm. Contrast that with the, the attitude of the disciples. They were scared to death. Don't you know we're going to die? <laughs> uh, and another little point we can make for the hyper-faith boys. What kind of faith was that? We're going to die? Oh, yeah, that's a real positive confession, is it not? They lived despite the fact that they confessed that they were going to die. Now, the disciples are asking Jesus to save them. They had seen him working miracles all day long, the day before. And even though they cried to Jesus in their distress, even though they had seen him working all miracles all day long, it, apparently they were worried that he wasn't going to save them because Jesus rebukes their lack of faith. He says, you have little faith in Matthew 8, verse 26. In Mark chapter 4, verses 40, he says, Why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? So that, so they didn't, it's not like they didn't have any faith. They went to him and said, God, Jesus, help us. So they had enough faith to go to Jesus, but they didn't have enough faith that he, that he was going to work it out quite to their satisfaction. So Jesus doesn't say you don't have any faith, but he did say you have little faith. What he's saying is, if you really had faith in me, you wouldn't even have gotten nervous. You would have just been calm as I was back there sleeping on that boat cushion. Jesus says, you have little faith. I think I checked it one time in the book of Matthew six times. For example, he told his disciples who couldn't cast out an epileptic demon, what's the matter with you guys, you have little faith? And he would say that all the time. He expected people to believe in him. And it was like, he was, it's almost like a, he had this childlike attitude. It's, what's the matter with you guys? How come you don't believe me? I'm the son of God. You don't believe I can take care of anything? I'm telling you, reading these stories like this, if that doesn't build your faith, and I don't mean in Kenneth Copeland's type of faith building. I'm not talking about faith in formulas. I'm not talking about faith in your faith, which is very weak. I'm talking about faith in the Son of God, faith in Jesus. Your faith's going to get bigger. The more you look at Jesus, the, your faith is going to get bigger. Now, when the disciples said, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Rabbi, don't you care that we're going to die? What was their tone of voice? Some people have said, well, they're just praying and asking, praying and interrogating Jesus. Jesus, uh, is it really true that you don't care that we're going to die? I mean, come on. How can anybody think that? They were scared. They were complaining. They were testing Jesus. What's the matter with you, Jesus? How come you're not going to save us? That's what they were saying. Mark chapter 4, verses 39 through 41. He got up rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. So he rebuked both the wind and the sea. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Verse 40, then he said to them, Why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? Well, I guess they had faith then after they saw it. Of course, faith is the substance of things not seen, and they saw, so maybe they, it's not true to say that they had faith in Jesus' ability to calm the storm. Maybe what he's saying is, Do you not have faith in me to do anything from now on? Do you still have no faith? I mean, how many times do you see Jesus deliver you and work miracles in your life? And then the next problem comes up. Oh, God, you leave me in the lurch. You're not going to get me out of this one. Do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? 
Verse 41, and they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. They still didn't really have a clear conception that Jesus was the Son of God. But can you get imagine watching Jesus get up and say, uh, wind, be still, uh, uh, sea, be calm, and boom, total calm envelops their eyes and their ears. Quite an amazing thing to be with the Son of God. He's teaching them. He's showing them gradually. He's gradually revealing them, himself to his disciples to show who he really is. And that's the same way he works with us today. He doesn't show it all at once. We have to see incident after incident after incident of his providence, of his miracle-working power, of his love, his grace. And after a while, it sinks through our skulls. You know, this is the Son of God I'm serving. He's not going to let anything happen to me. We're finished with chapter 4 and Mark 4. We'll take up Mark 5 in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.